Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. called the uh, Tevel B'Tzedek, which comes from a, uh, a phrase in the Tehillim, uh, which means the world with justice. Tevel is one of the wor- words for the world, actually like kind of the inhabited world, with justice. And um, I found it about 13 years ago, and I'm going to tell you about it a little later, but um, the idea of uh, Tevel B'Tzedek, and something that I've been working on for a long time, um, Basically, Tevel B'Tzedek, as Shmuley says, we work with uh, we work with villages in Africa and in uh, Asia, and in Nepal, and now we're starting in Zambia. We also worked in Haiti and, with, and, and in Burundi. But the idea is that um, in this, one of the great challenges and also opportunities in the world today is to combine the universal and the particular, to integrate and synergize the universal and the particular in a way that's, that hasn't been done before. I like to think of the, the Enlightenment, which was about 200 years ago when Jews in Western Europe started to become able to become citizens um, of their countries. Um, and it came down on Judaism, like on, on Jews, like almost like a meat cleaver, splitting the Jewish people in half where some people said, okay, now that we can be part of everyone else, because before that you really had to be within your religious community, whether you're a Christian, whether you're a Jewish, whether you're a Muslim, now that we can be part of the general world, the big world, um, and perhaps even escape persecution, so we're gonna drop most of the outside indicators of who we are, um, and we're gonna take with us what we believe is the essence of, of our uh, charge, which is uh, uh, ethical mono- monotheism, and um, you know, and this produced the reform, the early reform movement, and it produced uh, um, other kinds of Jew- Jewish secular, uh, more secular movements. And in the other side, the other people, the other part was, this is so scary. The ghetto walls are disappearing. We better put up very strong ghetto walls of our on a, of our own. And. Uh, and this dilemma between universalism and particularism was, I believe, a modern dilemma, and we're now in a postmodern world where th- that dilemma is not really relevant anymore. We now know that we, ha- we, we don't even have a choice. We're all particular. We're all coming from a deep history and tradition wherever we are. Even if we're in the West and we think we're, you know, we're the West, we're universal, we're scientific. No, we're coming from a specific history that means certain things. And at the same time, none of us can avoid being universal. We live in this immense global world. So how do we put those two things together? How do we put together being, uh, having a, a deep and strong Jewish identity, a deep connection to our Torah, and at the same time, a vision that includes everybody, includes the whole world. How did I get to what I'm doing? So that's what I want to tell you. I want to tell you some good stories and, and hopefully bring you to, um, to where I am today. So um, I grew up in, um, in the valley, but not this valley, San Fernando Valley. Um, at a time when, um, when uh, most of the Orthodox world, most of the people there were uh, Holocaust uh, survivors, many of the people in the Orthodox world. Um, and my mother came from that world. Uh, and yet I remember that something very important to me, that when for many, many years, uh, we didn't, well, we didn't eat ice cream for many years because Everybody became so kosher 
and there was no kosher ice cream anymore, you know? So until finally kosher ice cream came to California. But at the same time, we didn't eat grapes and, and, and lettuce. Why didn't we eat grapes and lettuce? Because of Cesar Chavez, because we were boycotting. And for me, that was like, you know, that was my mother was saying, this is what the Torah is about. It's not only about the, the kosher ice cream, it's also about the, the grapes and lettuce. But I really didn't get into what I'm doing now until um, 1990, when for the first time I, uh, I flew to Ethiopia. What happened was, was that uh, I heard from somebody that the remainder of the Ethiopian Jewish community had come down from their villages, and I'd seen them and been fascinated by Ethiopian Jews for a long time. Because to me, it was having, these, having Ethiopian Jews stretched one's imagination of what it means to be Jewish. You know, you don't have to be white, you don't have to be uh, even, uh, uh, you know, urban, you don't have to be, uh, you know, completely different, and yet here they were in Israel in their beautiful robes and their beautiful customs and their, and their Shabbos and so on and so forth. Anyway, I heard that the rest of them, about half of them had come down in the 80s, the rest of them had come down from their uh, where they lived in the villages of Gondor to Addis Ababa to wait for Aliyah, to wait to, to, to come to Israel. And that had happened, of course, because the Mengistu government, which was a communist government, but now there was no, now communism was falling apart. Now the Soviet Union was falling apart, and there was no one to help him anymore in his battle against the rebels, and therefore he was reaching out to the United States and trying to do it also through Israel, renewed relations with Israel, let a trickle of Ethiopian Jews out. I flew there, I remember seeing the incredible sight of thousands of Ethiopian Jews in their Shabbos best lined up towards, in, the, you know, in a long line reaching from the Israeli embassy to try to register and get a little bit of aid while they were, while they were waiting. I went, kept going back to Ethiopia that, that, that year. I was invited to uh, uh, interview the president, Mengistu Haile Mariam. Um, uh, I interviewed him. This uh, communist dictator was uh, you know, considered a very brutal, uh, a brutal dictator, uh, shot his way into power. Um, but I kept coming back and, 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 and uh, uh, covering this, this story, uh, probably more than any other reporter, of the Aliyah but at the same time being drawn into the Ethiopian reality. And it was my first time in a um, uh, global south, uh, or whatever you want to call it, developing country, very, very poor country. Um, and I was both uh, totally enamored with the beauty of the people and of the place. Um, the immediacy of life there, um, the life force of people who are dealing all the time with, um, uh, with issues of, of, of life and death. Um, so there was also an attraction. I don't want to just say it's because I was, you know, somehow uh, thought it was, I was pitying them or I was tremendous attraction to the life force of, of, of these of, in Ethiopia. And Ethiopia is a place that, not like any other place in the world, it's its own unique universe. And at the same time came to understand that what poverty is really about is about vulnerability. That you can have a young per, you know, you can have a few, a child who's playing in some, uh, you know, slum in Addis Ababa uh, with a bicycle wheel with his cousins, and they're having a much better time than a child in Beverly Hills playing a video game alone in his home with a giant screen. And that kind of fun can go on and, 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 and even he might even have a healthier self-image. But the problem is, almost inevitably, something is gonna happen. His father, who may work you know, in physical labor, is gonna break an arm. He's gonna have to leave school. His father won't get medical help. Um, the, 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 the child will, all of a sudden, the family will, will become hungry. Uh, there'll be some kind of a disease that, that, that they have no access to a cure. Or like I saw 
a group of 10, 14, 15 year old kids playing soccer. All of a sudden, a truck runs up, comes up with uh, people with guns, taking the kids aboard. Now you're going to the front. In these countries, anything can happen to you. Or young women who are escaping uh, terrible hardship in a village, perhaps even being uh, sold off in a marriage that they don't uh, really want, coming to the city, and this was the time of the great AIDS epidemic, being pulled into a, uh, the bar scene because that's where they're gonna get, be able to be fed. And within a couple of weeks, they're, they're, they have AIDS and are, are, are gone within six months. These are the kinds of things that I saw in Ethiopia uh, that year. So, um, so on the one hand, I'm dealing with the Ethiopian Jewish story, incredible story, incredible to see the dedication of the Ethiopian Jews. I understood um, uh, something about Ethiopian Jewish spirituality, um, uh, that, that what there really are still with many of the customs from the first temple and basically trying to create a space of purity around them in order to receive revelations from above, something tremendous that they can add to, to you know, this, the Ethiopian Jewish story fascinated me. But at the same time, I'm drawn in more and more by both the beauty and the tragedy of the vulnerability of the people in Ethiopia. And meanwhile, the rebels keep coming closer and closer. I, I remember when I'm interviewing uh, Mengistu, I had a moment with him where at the very end of the interview, he says to me, you know, you're Israel, I, I've always admired Israel, because even though you're surrounded by Arab countries, uh, you've, always, you've managed to survive. You've managed to survive and to thrive throughout all this war. How have you done it? So knowing that he was a communist dictator very much uh, uh, against religion, uh, I said to him, there's a word in, in Amharic, one of the ways that they refer to God is Amlak Yisrael, King of Israel. So I said, Amlak Yisrael. I had to, um, but in any case, meanwhile, the rebels are coming, coming closer and closer. The Mengistu uh, is, uh, you know, they, they start calling him the mayor of Addis Ababa instead of uh, the, the, the Ethiopia. I'm there in Pesach. I had a crazy, incredible moment in Pesach there because the Ethiopian Kesim, who consider themselves they're both like the rabbis and also the Kohanim, they ask us for 10 uh, lambs that they can slaughter for, um, for, uh, uh, for Pesach sacrifice. And uh, meanwhile, they know that I'm a rabbi, they, and they consider me like one of them. I see the knife that they're using, uh, which is not a kosher knife because it's been traveling so much. It has like all kinds of nicks and you know, a kosher knife has to be very, very, uh, uh, very, very sharp and, and with no nicks on it at all. And, but yet I know that who you eat with, you are what you eat in, in Ethiopia. If you're Jewish, then you eat meat with Jews. If you're Christians, you eat meat with Christians. If you're Shmuley, you don't meet with anybody, but that's a different story. But, what? but, but, um, but uh, uh, so I had to decide, am I gonna eat this meat that I know is not kosher? And I felt like nobody knew what was gonna happen uh, with them. And if I don't eat, eat with them, then they'll feel like disheartened uh, because uh, they'll feel like I'm saying, oh, we're not really sure that you're, that you're Jewish. So I did, it, I did eat that, that meat. I wonder if anyone has ever had that dilemma before. But in any event, the, the, the rebels keep coming closer. Finally, Mengistu flees. Uh, I was back in Israel. Uh, someone tipped me off that there was gonna be this Operation Solomon. I fly back, I'm in the last commercial flight going into Ethiopia. The airport closes because the rebels have surrounded Addis Ababa and they have their guns trained on the airport. No planes are allowed to take off. Um, there's a deal made to allow the airlift to take place. I'm at the airlift and I have to decide if I'm gonna stay for the rebel entry into Addis Ababa or not. And that was a very big um, dilemma for me because I was scared. I'd never done anything like that before. But I felt in the end that I cared deeply also about, even though I'd come for the Ethiopian Jews, I cared deeply about Ethiopia. And I ended up staying for the rebel 
entry into Addis Ababa and uh, having a lot of adventures uh, covering it. Uh, just one funny thing I want to tell you. Other journalists had come in also, because it was the biggest story of the week until uh, later in the week, uh, Rajiv Gandhi got assassinated. Until then, the, it was the biggest story in the news cycle. These other journalists all are ragging me that I'm Israeli. You know, you're Israeli, they're going to use the Ethiopians for, to put them on the Leb South Lebanese uh, uh, border, uh, you got, you know, you're a fascist country, all kinds of stuff. Then we're in this situation, me and a few, some of the journalists, where all of a sudden fighting breaks out between the rebels and Mengistu soldiers, and we're caught in the middle. And the journalists say to me, oh, Micha, you're Israeli, get us out of here. <laughs> so that was... Uh, one of, those, uh, one of those moments where being Israeli switches, turns around, and I've had those moments a, a number of times. So anyway, that, that for me was like a, a turning point, deciding to stay. Uh, right after that, I went to Haiti to uh, interview um, the, uh, the new Haitian president. Um, the new Haitian president, um, uh, Aristide, Jean Bertrand Aristide, who was himself a priest who had, who had heard and spent two years in Israel and spoke Hebrew. So I said, okay, this is a good story for me. Um, he, of course, was a liberation theology priest. Uh, Christianity suffuses uh, Haiti, and you'll see signs there, you know, the Adonai laundry, you know. Uh, Elohim mechanics, rechovot, fruits and vegetables. It's crazy to see those, see those things. Um, I get there, first they tell me you can't, you can't uh, interview Aristide. Uh, we made a mistake, first I'd gotten permission, no, when he's not seeing anybody, you can go to this event that he's gonna be at, whatever. I'm a bit disheartened, I go out to this place called Port-au-Prince, which is, I mean, in Port-au-Prince to a place called City Soleil, which is one of the worst slums I've ever seen, maybe, the, maybe one of the, probably one of the worst in the world. I mean, it's unbelievable how dense things are so dense there that number one, people are sleeping in shifts. Um, people can't, uh, you know, some people have to sleep in the day because there's not enough shelter for them at night. Um, the, everything is so crowded together you can't even see the sky. There are rivers of sewer where young children are walking through, but they, they barefoot and these worms can come into them through their foot and eventually, eventually uh, even kill them. I mean, just terrible, terrible uh, uh, things. And I, 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 I walk through, through this, this place area. The next day is Tisha B'Av. It's the ninth day of Av, the day the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed. And um, I'm standing there in my hotel, and far away in the distance, I can see the city Soleil in the slum. And I realize that there's a Shekhinah. There's a holy, divine, there's, there's you know, the, the Talmud says that the divine presence, the Shekhinah, the feminine presence of God, is actually over the head of the sick when you go to visit the sick. And we say that the, the Shekhinah moved with Israel into exile, like a mother wanting to be with her children wherever they are. And no matter how uh, much they're suffering, the more they're suffering, the more she wants to be with them. And I realized that that Shekhinah was there with the suffering in Haiti and with the suffering of the global poor. It was like a switch for me where I understood that to really deeply live and realize the Jewish, uh, 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 Jewish spirituality and Jewish symbols, you also had to be able to apply them and to understand them and to feel them and to experience them in the world um, outside. And, um, and I literally feel it because I feel that, the, that suffering and hardship even though I'm not idealizing it, and I think that our job is to end it, but it brings out in people a kind of, a, of, of an energy and a life force um, that allows, uh, uh, allow, that, that, that there's great, great spirituality and dignity among, among, often, among the poorest of the poor. I, I have to say that. 
And that I disagree with Abel, Albert, uh, what's his name, Maslow, who says that there's that pyramid of, of uh, the, the pyramid that first you satisfy your needs and then you satisfy this and that and that. And finally, there's the pyramid of the spirituality. I don't find that to be true. I find that actually in the depths of the depths, there's often great spirituality. So years later, when I was in Haiti in the refugee camp, where Shmuley also was, where our organization was, was working after the earthquake, all of a sudden you hear amidst this terrible squalor where people, everyone there has lost a mother, father, brother, sister, child in the earthquake, you hear this beautiful singing, this beautiful, beautiful singing rising up from the, from, from, from the slums, from the squalor. So Haiti was a turning point for me in that sense, in understanding how the, the, the Shechina has just as it went into exile with us, with Israel, it's now in exile with the, it's now present amongst the poorest of the poor. Um, just an anecdote with uh, Aristide, what finally happened was that I saw him walking in this event that I was invited to, surrounded by his people, and I walked up to him and I said, Shalom, bati me'eretz Yisrael, l'irototcha. I came from the land of Israel to see you. And he hugged me, and he gave me the first, and he gave me an interview a few days later in, 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 in his palace. And again, all these journalists who had been ragging me, and who, for them, Aristide was a hero, they couldn't believe that he was giving attention to this, you know, to this Israeli. So then, um, after Haiti, I was in Somalia. And Somalia was really, uh, I was there uh, a few, weeks before the Marines came in. The Marines came in because there was, Somalia at that time, it's a little better now, was the epitome of a failed state. There was no one to take your passport at the airport. There was just a group of armed uh, people from a certain clan that had taken control of the, rest of the airport. You gave them $20, that was it. There was no telephone service. There was no uh, electricity unless you had a uh, a, uh, a generator. There was no um, uh, there was no water uh, in, unless you had a well. Um, there was uh, no police. There was no post office. There were just armed. Sometimes children as young as fourteen or fifteen on every street belonging to different clans. That's who was controlling the streets. And I went around there for around ten days, and I was. I was okay, I had crazy things happen to me. I was threatened at gunpoint, different kinds of things happened to me. Um, uh, I also had a wonderful experience where I was, I was in, in my, in where I was, in the um, uh, place I was, uh, you know, this kind of compound of Doctors Without Borders, which was run by Muslims, but the Doctors Without Borders were there because the whole country is Muslim. So I was, I was praying in my room, um, the, the afternoon prayer, and this Muslim comes in who runs the place, and he sees me, and he tries to talk to me, and I don't talk to him back. And afterwards, I apologized to him. I said, I, I was dominating. I was praying. I'm sorry. I was praying. And he said, I've never seen a white person pray like that, like we do. That's, that's, that's uh, you know, and, and it, was, it, was, it was, for me, an amazing moment of connection. But in any case, Somalia, crazy place. I go out to, this, uh, to these villages that are, that are really starving because what happened was there was tremendous turmoil. The government of Siad Barre was thrown out. He created a scorched earth. People are starving. Perhaps uh, a, a million people are in danger of starvation. We go out to one of the worst areas. I go with this Irish organization, Goal. I see tremendous differences. Like there's one village where even though they're starving and we bring them relief, there's this tremendous dignity that they have, and they're all listening to their, there's a leader who's an elder, and nobody, nobody does, you know, nobody grabs, nobody talks out of turn, nobody, everything, there's, they're dressed beautifully still, and, and then in another village, they're fighting already over the, over the, um, you know, over, over the food that we're bringing them. Um, so this idea, this, what I've, I see is that people have both the capacity to rise above uh, almost anything with tremendous dignity and at the same time uh, 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 there's also always the potential for chaos and we're 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 we're, we're always in, in 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 the many times in the balance and this gets tested when we are um, 
uh, in, in extreme situations. God forbid, I hope that we never are. But I, I, the, the, and so, so for me, I understood then that the, 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 the thrust of Judaism is to also to give us strength to create the structures that can operate even under uh, this uh, kind of ter- tremendous uh, duress. Um, so Shabbos in Somalia, what happened was the last day before I was supposed to leave Somalia, uh, the only way to get in and out were by like a, U- a UN or Red Cross plane, one of these little planes. So I had reserved a Red Cross plane for uh, Friday. Uh, and uh, on Thursday, I went into the marketplace. And I shouldn't have gone in on without armed guards. All of a sudden, all kinds of hell broke loose. People running, shouting, shooting. I see people dying by my side. Whole long story, I get scared as hell. I said, I'm, thank God I'm leaving here tomorrow. My whole head is filled with like black. I'm like, you know, I can't believe how, 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 how terrible, you know, I, I just get spooked. After 10 days when I was okay, I suddenly get spooked. I go there the next day to the UN. They say, no, the plane took off already. It's gone. It came and left. It didn't wait. I go to the airport. I said, I got to get out of here. I, someone says to me, that, this is the UN flight officer. You have to talk to him. It turns out he's Jamaican. I say to him, can I leave? He says, yeah, there's going to be a plane. See that plane over here? It needs to be fixed. There's a plane coming in from Kenya. It's going to come. It's going to fix the other plane. And then it's going to fly back to Nairobi. I said, great. One o'clock, the plane comes. The engineer gets off, starts fixing the plane. But then he's fixing and fixing. Suddenly, it's three o'clock. And I realize that if I get on, even if I get on the plane now, it'll be Shabbat by the time I get to Nairobi. And in Nairobi, I'll have to fill in the passport. And I start thinking to myself, wait a second. Um, maybe it's uh, life and danger, life, life and death, because crazy things are happening here. And I said, but why'd you come here in the first place if it's life and death? And then I said, well, um, okay, okay, I'll stay. I'll stay. But I want a sign from God. And, you know, you're not supposed to get signs from God, and I couldn't help it. I was in such an extreme situation. It just came out of me. And at that moment, the flight officer turns on his motor, and he's going to go back to Mogadishu. And I run up to him and I said, can I get a ride back with you to Mogadishu, to where I'm staying? And he says, yes, you can. But why would you want to? You want to leave Somalia so much. So I said, look, I haven't been saying anything to people because this is a Muslim country and I don't know what's going on here. And I'm, you know, but I'm Jewish and tonight is my Sabbath. So he says, ho, 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 Shabbat. I'm like, what? And it turns out that he, his previous assignment was in Jerusalem. He was with an ultra-Orthodox family. He knew all about Shabbat. All of a sudden, I'm saying, I thought maybe I could get on the plane. I can go, I can go to, you know, I can fly before Shabbat, but I'll get there. It'll be Shabbat, but maybe I can... So. No, no, no. If it is Shabbat, you must stay in Somalia. <laughs> so I have my, I have my, my sign. Um, and, uh, and then at the end, he takes me home, and he says, Shabbat Shalom, and, 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 and so on and so forth. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. So, um, anyway, I continue these kinds of journeys. Um, I'm in, uh, I'm in uh, um, well... One of, one of the turning points also in my understanding of the world was that I did a story in Thailand about the workers, the Thai workers who had come to Israel. About 5,000 Thai workers are agriculture workers in the Arava in Israel, in the desert. And they're there because after the first intifada, the Palestinians were no longer able to work there, uh, they was always interrupted, and they needed labor that was inexpensive and very intensive because Israel's agricultural products had become 80% for the global market. So they needed to produce the best pepper possibly that they could. 
So they brought in these people from Thailand. And it turns out all these people from Thailand had come from a certain region in Thailand, a very poor region. And I flew to that region to try and understand why were they leaving, why were they coming to Israel, why were they going to wherever else they were going. And it turns out that Thailand, like many, many other countries in the world, had borrowed money from the United States and from Europe during the 1970s, when there was a lot of money in the United States because the Gulf states had brought in all their money from the oil money after 1973. They were lending out at very, um, very cheap uh, amounts uh, of interest. But then when Reagan came in, the interest rate went up, shot up, and these countries couldn't pay anymore. And then the United States said, look, you have to keep producing. You have to produce things that you know, can get dollars. And in order to do that, you need to build factories. So these people in the eastern part of Thailand the, had been fishermen. And now the rivers were dammed up to build factories, to bake electricity, to build factories, to create products that could be sold for dollars to pay back the loans that they'd taken in the 1970s. So it was like kind of a Chad Gadya, you know, that, that song. And then I, I started to understand how globalization was working and that the journeys I was taking were really all in a post-Soviet Union world, in the, in the world of fast-track globalization. And I became very interested in what was happening to the poorest populations of these countries during that uh, during this, this period in which the economy of the world was becoming knitted together in a way that it never had before. And what was our Jewish, uh, uh, what does it mean to be a Jew in this era? What does it mean to be a Jew in the era of, of, uh, of, of glo economic globalization? What is our vision for the world? And another trip, I remember I went to the, uh, an area on the uh, borderland between Ethiopia and Sudan. And there was a group there that I was fascinated by, a hunter-gatherer group called the Gooms, who, um, uh, who had still hunted with their bows and arrows and everything like that, and they never lied. And I was very interested in that, that aspect of the fact that they never lied. I wrote about it and so on. But I remember looking at that area. The Italians had built a really beautiful hospital there that was now abandoned, but high-tech hospital, now abandoned. Then there were many, many people farming like in the biblical, like in biblical times. And then there was the jungle with the hunter-gatherers. And what I realized was that, um, I realized that for the first time in human history, first of all, you could see all of human history in like one glance from the hospital to the jungles. And I realized that if we really wanted to understand the Jewish, you know, the, the Torah, we had to go back to the Garden of Eden and to the hunter-gatherers and to see how, how to see the Torah in that perspective of the development of human history and the development of agriculture. And I, I came to understand that really there's a spine running down the, 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 the Torah through the narrative part of the Torah, which brings us from going out of the Garden of Eden where they're eating everything to where they're eating by the sweat of their brow to agriculture, to the whole story of Joseph where there are, um, uh, where um, he's helping Pharaoh, Pharaoh to store uh, food uh, you know, massive amounts of food that, that really is the, the power of Egypt, the power of empire is in this storage. Um, to the liberation from slavery, this ends up enslaving the Egyptians, enslaving the Jews. Of course, there's many other themes in the Torah, but I see this as a major theme. To the man, which is almost like the mana. You have to gather it every day. You can't store it. You only eat and you only get enough for what you, you have, for what you need each day. And then they go into the land of Israel, the people of Israel, and the Torah give, try, creates, tries to create, suggests how to create a society that on the one hand can build itself up, can grow, people can work and gather and 
create. But on the other hand, underlying it, there's the sabbatical year, there's the jubilee year, there's the forbidding of interest, there's the breaking of loans, there's in general a, 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 um, a, a Torah principle that human need and dignity become before property because ultimately property is a tool that we can use to create and use to have motivation, but it's also in the end can enslave. And um, so I took this and began to think about the way the world is working now and how can we connect Israel um, and the Jewish people to, um, uh, to uh, a world, um, uh, to the, these issues of, of, of global uh, poverty. Um, and, and within that, through that, I end up creating uh, this organization, Tevel Betzedek. But I want to tell you one more good story before I get to that. So um, after the Iraq war, um, I decide to uh, go to Iraq. Um, I had been in touch with a German guy who had an organization in Kurdistan. And he told me exactly how to get to Iraq. You can take uh, a, a sherut, which is like a, a collective taxi, um, from uh, Amman to, uh, to Baghdad. 1,000 kilometers. That's, I don't know, 700 miles. How much do you think it would cost? $50. And I think I got ripped off. I think the real cost was, the real, real price was $35. So, I got to Baghdad, got pulled back up to Kurdistan, came back down to Baghdad with a, with a, uh, a um, translator, hired a Shiite driver, so I had my team. Kurdish translator, Shiite driver. And um, Iraq is in just coming out of a period of tremendous disarray. I mean, one of the things that, the tragedies of the Iraq war was that the Americans, after they throughout Saddam and his army uh, really didn't have a plan. And um, um, there was tremendous uh, violence and uh, uh, rape and all kinds of things happening uh, then. And they were just getting out of it. And at the same time, the, the, the counter terror and chaos was beginning. So there was, there was you know, all, been before it had been like private. Now people were organized and bombs and all kinds of things like that. So it was a crazy trip. Understanding Iraq is very delicate ethnic makeup, and understanding that really the story of the Shiites is at the center of it. Go down to um, Karbala, which is where uh, one of the founders of Shiism, um, Hussein, is buried. And um, there's the tomb of Hussein, the big mosque of the tomb of Hussein. So I go in there. Um, with um, with my uh, driver and with the uh, uh, with the translator, and uh, all of a sudden, I'm in the tomb of Hussein. It's one of the two holiest sites of the Shiites, besides Mecca. And the translator comes by me and he says, "I think we're in trouble." Oy, oy, oy. what's happening? Second later, the religious police arrest me. They had thought that I was Iranian, because now, for the first time, the Iranians could come into these Shiite holy places, which are in Iraq. But, but once I got in, I wasn't acting like, apparently, like a normal Muslim would. And people talked to me in Iranian, in Persian, and I wasn't answering. So they take me into this room, and um, question me, and I hear them saying, I know some Arabic, so I hear them saying to the uh, Kurdish translator, what's his religion? And uh, I hadn't told the Kurdish translator that I'm Jewish or Israeli, so he says, Masachiyah, which means Christian. It's like the same word as Mashiach. So I have to say that I don't jump up and say, no, I'm not, I'm Jewish. <laughs> and I end up, we end up being released. And because a moderate group 
had taken over that mosque. There had been a battle and a moderate group had taken over that mosque just two weeks before. And, um, and this is one of, my, one of the lessons I learned is that, and then they even allowed us to interview one of their top people and I asked him about Israel and he said that he doesn't care whatever the Palestinians do, is okay with him. You know, if they make peace with Israel, it's fine with him. He doesn't hate the Jews. He's, and uh, and it doesn't, doesn't hate, doesn't hate. Um, and this is something that I, I encounter a number of times. I'm also in Bangladesh, I'm in Indonesia, that there is in Islam, there, there's different forms of Islam. And, and that's something that's so important for us to know. And that we have allies in certain forms of Islam that we don't in other forms of, forms of Islam. So anyway, um, during the course of this traveling, I'm always looking for how can I make a connection? How can we make a connection between Israel, Judaism, and the, the, the challenge of poverty in the global south, which is a challenge. It's a challenge not only because it's not like, you know, if people were living in villages the way they'd always traditionally lived, that would be one thing. But there's chaos now. There's, there's crisis. It's, it's not, things are not remaining the same. And in 2005, I went with my family, with my uh, children, to India. And I see all these Israelis traveling on what people like to call the hummus trail, because there are all these Indian restaurants that cater to Israelis and serve Israeli food and so on and so forth. And all of a sudden, it sparks my idea. Maybe I can use this interest, because there's this huge, what, about 40% of young Israelis travel in either India or in South America, now also in Africa, after the army. And I'm saying maybe we can use this for uh, creating a connection where uh, Jews and Israel uh, can get involved in this challenge of global poverty. And that's the background through which I create uh, this organization, Tevel B'Tzedek. So by two years later, the next year I use to, uh, about a year and a half later, I found Tevel B'Tzedek, which at the beginning was, the, the model was, I bring a group of young people, Israelis, American Jews, to Kathmandu. I decided to do it in Nepal. We do a month of intensive learning, Torah learning, learning about poverty, learning about global economy, learning uh, about uh, learning language, learning Nepali language. And then I send them out into various organizations as interns. Um, whether it's an organization for street children or whether it's an organization for uh, women who've been trafficked or whether it's an organization uh, for in the slums, a school in the slums, many different kinds of things. Okay, we come back every night, we talk. There were about 17 of us all together. We talk, uh, plan, and, and, uh, you know, and some stay for another next cohort as Madrichim. But we, I very quickly learn three things. Number one, the internship approach has some very strong limitations. Because you're always going into a place, leaving the place, putting the responsibility, a very difficult responsibility for how to take in, uh, how to take in volunteers, uh, Western volunteers, you're, you're outsourcing it to the organization and they don't really know necessarily how to do it or what to do with it. Number two, all of the uh, problems that we see in the, in the city, slums, trafficked women, the children, the, the, the street children, basically are happening because the rural village, the subsistence farming rural village is collapsing. And as Israelis, we have knowledge of agriculture. And I start to believe we can really help them. But the number three is to do something real, you often, almost always, if you want to make a long-term transformation, you have to work long-term. You have to work for a few years at a time. So we start going into villages. The first village we go into is a fishing village where the river 
has run, is not, doesn't have fish anymore. The, the water's been diverted. There's uh, perhaps the very beginnings of climate change, which we see affecting villages even much more later on. And these fishermen are now part of a larger group of landless people who are breaking stones by the river. Terribly difficult work where they also end up smashing their fingers and having pieces of rock fly into their eyes. Yet they have land. So we're able to go in there, very little money. This was our first village. For a couple of thousand dollars, we bring a pipe about half a kilometer. All of a sudden they have water and we start teaching them farming. We build a demonstration farm there. I bring, start to build a staff, because if we're doing long-term, we have to have a local staff. I bring Dr. Bishnu Chapage, he's a PhD, a Nepali agronomist who did his PhD in Israel at Ben-Gurion University, comes back to Nepal, starts to work with us. We're able to transform this village, working with women. The women are the, the really the, the they're the ones who hold the whole thing in their hands. And many of them had never been in a group before. Almost all the places we worked with, they, they, uh, um, uh, uh, the women said that the most powerful thing was just first of all being in a group and being able to, to stand up and to look people in the eye and, 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 say what they, and say what they think. So we ended up working there, transforming the village, being able to transform uh, more villages. We worked in Haiti after the earthquake. We worked in Burundi, where we had to leave because of violence between Hutu and Tutsi. And now we're going into Zambia. And people ask me, well, how, how, is, this, how is this Jewish? There are a lot of people who say, what about your own people? Don't your own people come first? There's a, there's a saying in the Talmud, the people of your city come first. And I say to them, first of all, you're in a misunderstanding. That's if everything's the same. Basically, all the commentaries say that's if everything, if all, all things are equal, then the people of your city, you have more responsibility for them. If someone's starving, you know, and he's from a different city, and someone here isn't starving, he just uh, needs a new uh, jacket, the person who's starving comes first. So first of all, you're not understanding. But second of all, what is our city today? We're all so connected to each other. If we would look, source everything that comes in, 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 from this room, we'd probably find it coming from 50 different countries, many of them countries in the global south. Now we know how what we do here in the United States or in Israel with carbon <coughs> is affecting the livelihoods of people in, 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 in Nepal and, 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 and all over. But even more than all that, it's just a very deep feeling of mine that, that for Judaism to survive and to be a force in the world, we have to have a big vision. We, it's time now. We have that vision. You know, our Torah begins not with Abraham, and even Abraham is the father of many, of many and he's chosen by God because he, he, he's going to teach tzedakah uh, mishpat, righteousness and, 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 and justice to the world. But it begins with Adam. It begins with Adam Arishon. It begins with the first man. And it ends with the messianic uh, vision of, uh, of, of the prophets and of Isaiah. And now, I, I, in, this, in this global world today, I, I feel that the world really needs us and we need the world. We need to be partners it's not, and that's another great thing, I think a powerful thing about Judaism in terms of social justice is that one of the big mistakes when people went into the developing world, one of the big mistakes when they were helping to develop the, the world is they came, we are the universal. You are the tribal and we are the universal. We bring science or we bring Christianity, which is the universal religion which everyone has to practice, or whatever it is. And I believe that we as Jews, first of all, we believe that you don't have to be Jewish to, for your soul to be saved. No matter how orthodox you are, you don't believe that. Uh, you, you believe that every good person has a, has a place in the world to come. So we're not, we don't need to go out there to save souls. 
And we go, when we go there with our particularism, with our depth of our commitment to our own, um, our own people, and yet to connect to other peoples, this has a tremendous resonance. And it enables us, I believe, to be able to see the sparks of light in others' traditions, and it enables them to be, to be inspired by us. I've had my staff in Nepal or in Burundi to say, we're, we're so inspired by how much you love your own people, you know, and that you're reaching out uh, uh, to us. So um, in short, um, I think that this taking responsibility for who we are now as a people um, uh, means, on the one hand, plumbing the depths of our tradition, every word of the Torah shining for us, but on the other hand, taking responsibility for the power we have and for the vision of uh, uh, creating a more just and beautiful world for everyone, taking that responsibility going out with the tremendous energy that we have, which young Israelis have, with American Jews have, um, partnering with others, and I think that we can make a tremendous difference in the world. So that's the message that I wanted to bring to you today. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.